Hi, this is Dan. And this is Sarah. And we'd like to welcome you to PediPal, a monthly podcast about all things and all team members in pediatric palliative care. Well, sort of monthly. Um, oh, yeah, we're, we're back. back. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Thanks for your patience, everybody. We had a parental leave on my end. We're excited to be back. And um, we are re-inaugurating our PDPAL journey with a conversation this month about the role of psychology in pediatric palliative care. And if you attended the annual assembly this year and saw the keynote and a couple of other different presentations, you'll recognize that this is a hot topic these days. And a theme we run into quite a bit is this sounds amazing. Why doesn't every team have this? And that's something we really like to explore with our guest today who we've invited on to talk about exactly this. And I want to mention that our guests are also the authors of a recent paper looking at competencies in pediatric palliative care, streamlining education, streamlining quality, and really trying to define the role both within psychology and for other members to help understand. So they're going to help us understand today. I'm Dr. Amanda Thompson. I'm a pediatric psychologist. I currently serve as the Chief of Pediatric Psychology and the Director of Pediatric Programs at Life with Cancer, which is the psychosocial arm of the Shar Cancer Institute in Fairfax, Virginia. Hi there. I'm Dr. Rachel Kentor, and I'm a pediatric psychologist at Texas Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. This topic is something that we have been thinking about doing for quite a while. And then the annual assembly came around this year, and it seemed like psychology was the hot topic. Appropriately so, right? feels like this has been a long time coming to talk about psychology and palliative care. So we're going to try and ride this wave of popularity in talking to you guys. What do you think of as the elevator pitch? I'm sold. I think psychology should be a part of pediatric palliative care. How would you maybe pitch it to someone who is not yet convinced? So the elevator pitch kind of goes like this. We know that children with serious medical illnesses are at greater risk for development of mental health challenges and distressing physical symptoms. Some of the most common parent reported symptoms for youth with either advanced disease or those nearing the end of life, things like pain, nausea, sleep problems, anxiety or fear are those that are uniquely well addressed by psychologists. We bring specialized knowledge and expertise in child and family assessment and intervention, research design and delivery, team dynamics, communication, and more, all to benefit our patients, families, and teams. And in the end, research shows us that psychology involvement for kids with serious illness can decrease symptomatology for things like depression and anxiety, can mitigate exacerbation of illness, promote adherence to medical recommendations, and even decrease healthcare utilization by reducing hospital length of stay. Psychologists on pediatric palliative care teams, easy sell. We're in. We're 100%. This kind of reframing and moving forward with these sort of thoughts and realities, we're sold. We're there. Why? I don't want to say why isn't everybody sold, but why aren't psychologists always part of pediatric palliative care teams? 
So I think one of the biggest pieces is there's just a lack of awareness about what psychologists have to offer, right? So oftentimes what we hear is we already have a social worker, we have a psychosocial team, what is a psychologist going to add, right? There's a perception that it's a redundancy to have psychologists. There's low recognition in the field, I think, at least historically, about the training that we do have in research and symptom management, the things that we can offer. And that was a big reason of why we wanted to come up with these competencies was to be able to help educate our interdisciplinary colleagues about what the things are that we can offer. I also think it's important to acknowledge the financial factor, right? We know palliative care teams often struggle with financial sustainability. And so the idea of hiring on another full-time doctorate level provider can also be a barrier. We fully recognize and respect the interdisciplinary team and all the professionals that are a part of that team. Honestly, that's why we love practicing in palliative care. But we also have to recognize that there can be some overlap in those various areas of psychosocial support. So again, this is really one of the reasons why we wanted to take a close look and develop some of these competencies so that we can ensure that we're clear about what psychology has to offer, what we bring to the table, and that we can educate others, um, other providers in Pete's palliative care with regards to our training and expertise. You've both mentioned the competencies. I'm wondering if you could introduce that project, the creation of the competencies for our listeners. So this was very much a, a labor of love by a group of nine psychologists who have lots of um, experience in Pete's palliative care. Really kind of zooming back, we know that psychologists are currently underrepresented in Pete's palliative care models, national guidelines, and training curricula that are already out there. There are other psychosocial providers like social workers and chaplains are considered core members of the Pete's palliative care team, as they should be. But psychologists have yet to be sort of routinely incorporated into practice and into the teams. It's interesting because there's some survey data out there that tells us that, you know, currently it's like less than a quarter of Pete's palliative care programs in the U.S. have psychology represented on their teams. And we suspect a large part of that is that our role to date hasn't been really well defined. At the same time, we also know that there's a growing recognition for the need for increased mental health support for children and families. And Rachel and I actually personally have seen sort of the growing numbers of trainees with interest in palliative care, yet there's little guidance out there for them as they pursue training opportunities, education, their career trajectory. Our training and much of training in pediatric palliative care is trial by fire, right? So we don't have dedicated, you don't take a course in pediatric palliative care in graduate school. And so what you're, you're really learning as you go, you're seeking mentorship. One of the goals of these competencies is really to help, like Amanda said, standardize training. We started by reviewing kind of what's already out there. So that included competencies that are currently um, available or that previously been developed for pediatric psychology specifically, and then for other subspecialties of psychology. We also looked at uh, guidance for psychologists in adult palliative care, competencies for the other disciplines in Peds palliative care that are out there, and then various related professional standards, quality guidelines, like from the National Consensus Project uh, and more. So these competencies sort of rest on the assumption that psychologists already possess the competency, they already practice the competencies of a pediatric psychologist and these being sort of a higher tier of practice. And so we had, you know, 
review of all that material, we started to draft the competencies. We kind of worked in subgroups, kept coming back to one another and having sort of long discussions about what we thought should be included. Once we had that good working draft, probably my favorite part and something that was really important to all of us was making sure that we distributed those competencies to a group of, of reviewers. Um, and it ended up being about 15 different individuals. We made a concerted effort to make sure that those reviewers, we were really capturing a very diverse and multidisciplinary perspectives. So we had Peds Palliative Care physicians and NPs take a look, psychologists and psychology trainees, social workers. We had chaplain, child life specialists. Specialists, and, and most importantly, our parent advocates. We actually had parents involved in the review process as well. So then we incorporated all of that feedback and kept, you know, sort of next iteration, next iteration until we landed on the competencies as they stand today. So what we did with the competencies, we structured things around a model that is often used in professional psychology. It's called the CUBE model. We used a modified version of it, but what we did was we developed competencies within six different clusters. So each cluster has several competencies. And then within those competencies, we also developed behavioral anchors to show how does that competency, what does that look like? right? Objectively, how would we know that we're practicing, that we're demonstrating mastery of that competency? So, for example, in the research cluster, one of our competencies is that psychologists use rigorous methodology, including identifying appropriate outcome measures, data collection techniques, and data analytic approaches. So, one of the behavioral anchors for that is identifies outcome measures and emerging methodologies frequently used in PPC research, like wearable devices, ecological momentary assessment. Another example within the assessment cluster, we'll say, is psychologists assess the biopsychosocial, developmental, spiritual, and family systems factors that can impact children with serious illnesses. And so a behavioral anchor for that competency is that one critically evaluates the appropriateness of existing psychosocial instruments within the context of confounding factors, like physical symptoms directly resulting from the medical diagnosis, biological aspects of the dying process. And, you know, Rachel mentioned some of the clusters, but I'll just um, make sure we sort of list them all. So one of the clusters are science, which includes research, um, application, that's intervention and assessment, education, interpersonal skills, professionalism, and then systems issues. And so those are really the big sort of, you know, headlines that we develop competencies underneath. So when you mentioned training and you mentioned your own journeys and common journeys, you mentioned trial by fire. And so now we have a beautiful, well put together list of competencies. And I'm wondering, outside of the trial by fire, if you could imagine what evaluation or even a step back, what training would look like for your trainees who are now, sounds like increasing numbers, interested in pediatric palliative care. What that would look like if you had all the power in the world to... To create. I mean, this is where I get, this is where I get really excited. You know, this is one of the goals, certainly, in creating these competencies that we could look to a future where we have a peds palliative care curriculum for psychologists. Cause as I mentioned before, psychology has largely been absent from the curricula that, that are out there in sort of the interprofessional realm. You know, we really want to move away from that trial by fire, throw you in the deep end. Let's hope for the best model, which Rachel and I are both nodding because that is very much how we were trained. We were very lucky to have good mentors and teachers along the way. You know, we really want to be able to move to a place where we we really have the opportunity now to change that. 
in clarifying our role, we're making explicit the skills that we need to provide that high quality care. So we definitely have some work to do on kind of thinking through those little pieces, but that's what we're doing right now. And it's kind of fun to think that through. And so thinking of this as a subspecialty of pediatric psychology, are there misconceptions about the role that psychologists can have with other family members or older family members or different ways in which psychology interfaces with the whole family, the whole family unit? It's such a great question. That's actually one Rachel and I were talking about earlier today with colleagues of ours who are have just actually gotten funded funding to add pediatric psychologists to their Pete's palliative care team. And, and it's also just sort of a bigger question in our field overall. Certainly as pediatric psychologists, our scope of practice is children and adolescents. That's what we focus on and specialize in the treatment, the assessment and treatment of challenges uh, in that population. However, obviously disease, illness, mental illness, none of that occurs in a vacuum and the whole family is involved. So we do, we certainly have training in and spend a good portion of our clinical time collaborating with those parents as our partners, very much in service of the patient, right? So our focus is working with the parents to support and really maximize the quality of life for the child. So, for example, that might be a situation where child is experiencing some behavioral issues related to a prolonged hospitalization. Obviously, part of what we need to do is work with the parent to implement behavior management strategies. Another example is we've all had that experience where a parent is very anxious and that anxiety gets transferred to the child, right? That transmission of anxiety is a real thing. Um, I think those are the places where we see, you know, that's that's the best opportunity for us to bring in additional resources for that specific parent. So not uncommon for any of us, I'm sure, that we have a family who is reticent to engage in conversation about goals of care, who wants to keep persisting with disease-directed treatment, even though we know that it's not going to give a cure. We know that it's going to be causing more suffering for the child. And so we can take an act approach with the parents, with the family unit, too, and say, let's talk about what are the things most important to your family? What's stopping you from making these decisions? Can you be having these fears about what that means, these thoughts about what your life is going to be like without your child. And instead of letting those thoughts and fears dictate the decisions you're making, is it a possibility to hold them and in service of your values, what's important to you and what's important to your child? Can you make that decision while still holding that pain? You know, it's very, I think this is one of the areas where there's there's so much beautiful overlap with a lot of the palliative care work because these conversations about goals of care, right? We know all members of the palliative care team are having that conversation with families. I think about the way the palliative care teams sometimes when we don't have a social worker work with the unit social worker or when we don't have a nurse or nurse practitioner work with the bedside nurses. And there is something unique about having the clinician be dedicated to the palliative care team and be a member of the team as opposed to working closely but not actually affiliated. What, in your view, are the benefits of having a specific dedicated palliative care psychologist as opposed to just having psychologists who work with the palliative care team? I can jump in here because the model you're describing is largely um, how things are at my institution. So I am not fully dedicated to the palliative care service. 
So I'm part of our psychology department and I work, my patient load is oncology and palliative care. And so I am not formally part of the palliative care team, but the team will refer to me as the palliative care psychologist with patients. I attend our weekly interdisciplinary rounds. So there's that really close collaboration, but it's a step short, right, of being a member of the team. One of the drawbacks that comes with that is really thinking about the implications for the financial aspect in the way you're set up. So when you talk about things like reimbursement and productivity, the needs of palliative care patients often don't fit nicely into our billing models for pediatric psychology. And so when you're operating under a psychology department, for example, and you're using the same productivity expectations as an outpatient psychologists working with patients that have anxiety disorders, right? And they schedule patients on the hour, every hour, those patients predictably come, right? It's hard to fit that model when we're working with patients that A, there's a fluctuating influx of patients. Your patients have different needs at different times. You might spend four hours in the ICU in one day, right? And so I think when you have a psychologist who can be embedded in a palliative care team, I think it allows for more flexibility in being able to provide that clinical care. I think really what you're describing is that embedded versus a consultative model, right? And we know that right now the majority, the vast majority of psychologists that are engaged in peds palliative care work, like over 80%, are, are really working in as members of the medical subspecialty team with those populations that are, are likely to benefit from peds palliative care. So hematology, oncology, cardiology, NICU, et cetera. That is one of the sort of prime questions of sort of what is the model that is going to work best at your institution? What's going to work best in terms terms of again the financial sustainability piece. However, I think we you know can recognize that there are, are definite benefits to being embedded, even just from a visibility standpoint, a communication standpoint, all of those things get a little bit easier when you're fully embedded. Or a lot easier, I should say. <laughs> well and I think adding to that from a stigma perspective as well, right? Yeah. When you have the psychologist and you can say, here are the members of our core team, we have a chaplain, we have a social worker, we have a psychologist, it normalizes it. And so I think you get less pushback of, well, I don't need to meet with a psychologist. Why do I need to do that? Or, you know, people that have, of course, a lot of misconceptions about what psychologists might mean. When you're embedded in the team and you're considered a core member, I think that makes it much more palatable to families. It's easier for us to get our foot in the door. You could replace the word psychology with palliative care and everything you just said, and we would feel the same way, right? Like, yeah. we want to be embedded. We want to be part of the main team. We want to be normalized, routinized, you know, not some kind of, like, red flag that the end is near. Like, now we're calling palliative. Um, and at the same time, on the flip side, there's sometimes a benefit to palliative care being separate, right? You have the families who are like, I can talk to you, palliative care. You give me permission to say things that I could never say to my oncologist. Are there, for psychology, benefits to not being embedded on the palliative care team? You know, certainly, best case scenario, palliative care is integrated early in the disease trajectory. That's not always the case. And so I think there is something to be said for psychologists in those medical subspecialties may have a longer standing relationship with that patient and family and therefore really know who they are, what matters most to them, the types of challenges and concerns that have come up in the past. 
and can also be comfortable for the patient and family because that's a pre-existing long-standing relationship. There are a lot of times where I'm working with a family and I'm able to say to the team, I think we need to get palliative care involved, right? So as if I was fully embedded on the palliative care team, I'm only getting the chance to meet patients once they've become established with palliative care versus having the opportunity to be the introduction to palliative care, right? And to say, you know, there's this team I work really closely with that I think could be really helpful. I'm sure both of us have had the experience where we're working with a patient or family and we're able to get a big reduction in pain or in things that are not thought of as typical psychology targets where we'll go in and we're able to to see a lot of change in a patient. And then we have physicians or other members of the team come back and say, like, wait, how, how did you do that? I didn't realize that's something that you did. And so similar process to this idea of trial by fire is a lot of, I think, movement that we've made in getting psychology integrated into pediatric palliative care has been through boots on the ground clinical work and demonstrating firsthand to our teams what the value that we do add can be. One of my favorite sessions was doing biofeedback in a patient who just had this hypertension the team could not control with medication. They were throwing every hypotensive they could think of at him. And I had one of the physicians in there observing and we did biofeedback and you could just watch on the monitor, the blood pressure come down, which was just, it was so profound. And I think it was such a great learning opportunity on the physician side to be able to see like those tangible objective markers of what we can do. Those in vivo moments are really priceless. Yeah, we all spend so much time sort of like talking about total pain and the idea that the psychological and the spiritual and the emotional and the physical are all connected. And yet, I think a lot of us benefit from seeing those demonstrations because it isn't fully, not everyone believes it yet, or not everyone really understands the full extent to which there is a connection between the psychological and the physical in that way. Yeah, there's a whole subspecialty of pediatric psychology that is pain psychology, pediatric pain psychology. And I always chuckle because I'm like, they're palliative care psychologists as far as I'm concerned, right? Bring them over. But it's exactly all of that is really, you know, thinking about those mind-body connections and knowing that pain is is not just physical. And that's very much, again, you know, where we, we have some ability to intervene and improve the quality of life for these kiddos. Let's say someone has advocated and their administration said, great, here is your coupon for one <laughs> 1.0 FTE. How would you suggest people evaluate without formal training what competencies people have as they are looking for candidates for these roles? So what's funny and full circle about your question is We're that smiling. the first meeting Amanda and I had today at 8 a.m. was with two physicians who have just gotten the coupon, um, actually two coupons. Two for, coupons. Two coupons for adding psychologists to the palliative care team. And so the crux of our whole conversation was, what does that look like? How does that show up in practice? And how do you know somebody is going to be a good fit for that position? We talked about, a lot about, you know, sort of attitudes and values that are important. So flexibility and team player and collaboration and all those things that we know are so important for palliative care providers across the board. But I really think it's just knowing, communicating to all the teams out there, you don't have to do this alone. Like we're here to support you, that we really want to continue these conversations and to do what we can in terms of, you know, the experience that we've had at our different institutions to help you advocate and to 
help you be able to determine whether candidates really feel like a good fit in this field. For our audience, you can look to our show notes on pdpal.org to find the contact information for our guests who have so graciously offered their advice. And um, I'll say some other boilerplate type things at the end of the episode, but that's probably it. <laughs> Let's do an outro. So Dan, what are our take-homes from this episode? The traffic. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for that. You just happened to say that first, and so now I have to come up with something smart to say. Um, a lot of times... I'll come to the end of an interview and I'll think, wow, that really changed the way I look at things. This did not. This heightened my feeling that psychology is super important and it's a really important and really great addition to any palliative care team. Why doesn't everyone have psychology involved? And I recognize there are lots of reasons why, but I am, if anything, just more hungry for the inclusion of psychology in all of my efforts in pediatric palliative care now. After we did the interview, The day we did the interview, I went and talked to one of the psychologists who is not on my team, but works closely with my team. And I was so excited. I was like, there are these competencies and there's all this initiative to get more involvement. And I warned her then and I will warn all of the psychologists at my hospital now. We are coming for you. Please be ready. We're involving you in our care even more. And now if you listen to this episode, you will understand why. Yes, I think the why isn't it? is the part that we wanted to address a little bit more and still feels a little bit unfinished because I still don't fully understand why we aren't able to advocate for more psychologists on more teams. I will share the one part that surprised me or that was new to me was the idea of training by trial by fire, which is how a lot of these specialties first started. It's a lot of how I think even the physician role first started before we had fellowship programs and before we had boards and all of that. And I'm curious how that transition is going to go from trial by fire to trial by competencies. Yeah, I mean, for me, that's a very hopeful sign, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's the evolution of the specialty of pediatric palliative psychology into like a more mature and self-sustaining field, which it sounds like it's becoming, but that process of formalization, that process of standardization is such a key part. Being able to say that we have psychologists who are trained in a formal, standardized, official way makes it easier to then go to your mm-hmm. hospital administration or your team and say, hey, this is a legitimate field we should have this represented on our team. And the other thing that's not surprising in parallel with other specialties, but nice to hear is the amount of interest that's out there in the next, I don't want to say generation, but the next group of psychologists coming onto the field. And I'm hoping that those two things, the coupon, um, getting the coupon and then the interest and the number of people who want to do this training go hand in hand. And we revisit this episode in five or 10 years if the podcast still exists and say what a different world it was back then. Thanks for listening. Our theme song is provided by Kevin McLeod. You can follow us on Twitter where our username is at PDPal. You can find the notes for this podcast and all of our episodes on pdpal.org. If you'd like to submit thoughts, objections, or ideas for future episodes, please reach out via the email on our website. This has been PDPal. We'll see you next month. Yeah, that's the dream. To still be alive in five to ten years and doing this.
<laughs> well, yeah, no, for sure. Um, <laughs> thinking about the prognosis of our podcast, uh, looking at the spectrum of possibilities, in a best-case scenario, we're still doing this in five to ten years. No, we're passing this off to our children, speaking of the next generation, right? Like, they're taking over soon. I don't know how you're... Mine still doesn't know they have hands, so, like, <laughs> it's going to be a while before they're ready to, to do this. <laughs> 